Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hello and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now, sometimes there's a focus on culture and sometimes there's a focus on travel trends and sometimes there's a focus on passion projects, but it all comes back to the industry. So it has been busy in the short time since my last show. I've had several changes of scenery. I'm not complaining about any of it. Um, so I had a few days in Fenwick, which is the Delaware Beach. I had a few days home, a few days in New York, and now I'm back home again. So a couple of notes. If you're heading to the beach in what remains of the summer, I've got some recs for you. So Blue Moon is still a fave of mine. It's in Rehoboth. The menu does read like 2005, but honestly, the prep is amazing. The um, presentation is still terrific. The people who own it are so lovely. And right next door, they have an entertainment space. So there's sing-along, there's drag shows. Um, it's just a great place to be. I love the vibe there. We go almost every time we're in the area. There is a new Matt's Fish Camp. It's opened in the heart of Fenwick. Uh, great lobster rolls, great oysters. Um, Totally worth checking out. Uh, of course, the other one is um, up in Bethany. I had so many recommendations to go to Liquid Assets, which is in Ocean City, which I don't really go down to that side. But uh, so we went. We went to Liquid Assets. It's a really cool space. So it's a booze store. It's wine and liquor. Amazing offerings, great wines, a, a huge tequila and mezcal selection, and interspersed are tables and couches and seats. And you can sit down, you can order cocktails from the menu, you can order wine from the menu, you can order beer from the menu, or you can um, pick your own bottle and they'll open it up for you. There is a massive, massive menu um, and an incredible selection of cheeses and charcuterie. I would stick with the cheeses and charcuterie and forget the rest of the menu. That's just my personal point, but um, you do you when you go to Liquid Assets. Okay, very quickly, I did a huge run-up to New York City. I like to knock it out, and in 36 hours, I did a lot. So we got up there. I made my husband walk 15,000 steps, and we went right to little uh, Spain, Jose Andre's place, uh, for churros. Then we got back to our hotel, rinsed off, checked out uh, the new Vanessa Williams and Rachel Dress show POTUS, which is hilarious. And if you have a chance to see it, you absolutely should. We then ran down to the village, had snacks at Mineta Tavern, went to see another show, Alex Edelman's Just For Us, which was also very, very funny. Not as hilarious as POTUS, but really smart and poignant and very good. Then we decided to go to Brooklyn because that's what you do when you're in New York and you want to see the entire city. We checked out um, Michael Salmanoff's Laser Wolf, which is on top of a hotel whose name I can't think of at the moment, but it's really sexy. Lots of plants. It's all outdoors, super loud. I mean, our reservation was for 1030 at night and the place was hopping with incredible views. The food is amazing. If you've ever been to Sahav in Philly or the original Laser Wolf also in Philly, um, it's just an amazing updated Israeli menu. Uh, great wines, great food. It was amazing. And then just because I'm a total glutton. Before we left, we stopped at Via Corota, back down in the village, had one of everything, including all of their salads and all of their pastas, because they are delicious. Um, so that's my time out of town. I didn't even talk about the two dinner parties that I threw during the week and the dinner that I had um, at Kyle Bailey Saltline. I'll throw that in next time when we get together. So let's get into today's show. The Independent Grocery Store. What does it mean when I say that? It means a store that is not run by some corporate conglomerate with hundreds across the country that has no finger on the pulse of the community that it is in. Now, back on the show with me today is Bart Yablonski of Dawson's Market. There are two locations, one in DuPont Circle and one in Rockville. And Bart and his team at Dawson's has really made it their mission to be an active part of the community. And that means 
showcasing local artisans. That means doing events. That means activations. It's a lot of work running a grocery store. So Bart brought in to, with him today an amazing group of people that he has tapped and has their products in Dawson's. And that includes Patrice Cunningham, founder and CEO of Tegu Kimchi, uh, Lane Levine of A Family Bread, and apparently they make grilled cheeses, and I want to hear all about it, and Karen Hefner of Nomad Dumplings. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. And Bart, I'm going to start with you. Hello. Long time. How are you? How are you? Good. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So let's give everybody the Dawson story, if you will. Sure. So uh, Dawson started in 2012. Uh, it was originally owned by um, the owner of Elwood Thompson's in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and I came on in 2012 uh, and opened the store up. And then in 2018, fast forward a little bit, um, the previous owner decided he really wanted to focus on Richmond. And so when he announced that he was going to close Dawson's, there was just this huge outpouring of support to keep the store open in Rockville. Uh, and so I reopened the store. So I've owned the store since 2018 um, and we made a few changes to it, but Dawson's is known for three things. Um, number one is our commitment to local, which is what we're talking about today. Um, last I counted, we have 110 local vendors um, within 100 miles of our store. And those vendors travel all around the store. So people always associate local with produce, which we certainly have lots of that, but we've got local products in every department in the store. Um, and then number two is commitment to community. Uh, so we're super focused on our communities in both Rockville and, in, and now in DC. We have a community space that we make available to people. And we also have a commitment that 10% of our staff are people that have difficult finding jobs because of developmental or physical disabilities. Um, so at this point, I think we probably have maybe 20 individuals between the stores uh, that fall into that category and do various jobs around the store. And then number three is just our ingredient standards. Um, so we are an all natural store. Um, so all these vendors that we were talking to today and the vendors in our store uh, meet a standard that we have as far as clean products. Um, so that's really our three primary things that are important about us. Um, and then the biggest news is last year, it's been a year, I can't believe, uh, we bought a store in DC. Um, so now we have a store in DuPont Circle, just north of the circle. Uh, it was originally called Glenn's Garden. I was gonna say, you didn't just buy a store, you bought a, a, a real uh, neighborhood store that people loved. Absolutely. So, I mean, you were really jumping into something that's in your wheelhouse, but Glenn's really had a following in that DuPont market. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and the previous owner and I have known each other for a while and um, these two stores are very similar. Um, so it really was, it made a lot of sense for us to work together and for me to purchase the store from her. Um, we shared a lot of the same vendors, um, same commitment to local products, same commitment to the environment, to the community. Um, so we've just built on a great business that she had already established and we've, you know, put the Dawson's touch to it. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a great store. It's different. Um, it's a much smaller store. Um, has a little bit different vibe to it, but um, we're super excited about it. Well, so in the year that that launched, how has that changed uh, what you're doing in both Rockville and DuPont? Because I mean, juggling two stores is not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, ask my wife. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's definitely a lot of work, um, but we've learned from the two stores because they are a little bit different. Um, so we've got a great prepared foods department in the DC location that does more, much more um, made to order food, uh, which we don't do as much of in Rockville. Rockville, we have a salad bar and a hot bar. Uh, it's our primary kind of lunch, lunch business. So we've learned a little bit there. Um, there's some great recipes at both stores. So we've transferred recipes between stores. Uh, and then the local vendors, um, you know, we probably had 80% of the vendors already in Rockville that were in DC, um, but we certainly um, have found some new ones in DC. Uh, and then we also brought some from Rockville to DC. So um, we've definitely expanded our, our reach with local vendors because of the merger. Well, so let's talk about how you go about finding these local artisans or vendors. Um, because I assume there's a lot of things going on. I mean, there's a lot of incubators in the area that are doing amazing things. Um, there's a lot of people who are, you know, and I know this because we've talked about it, you know, like baking bread in their house or baking cakes in their house and, you know, thinking, oh, I should sell these. How do you find these artisans and producers and how do you help them along to finally showcase in your market? Because I know sometimes you're a real mentor to people. 
Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, so, I mean, it's a combination, you know, we're fortunate that we're well known in the market at this point. So we certainly get a lot of people that reach out to us directly, which is great. And we really appreciate that recognition. Uh, but we also look, you know, it's, so it's relationships like with you, um, you know, you certainly have put it, pointed us in the direction of people before. Um, we look at um, farmers markets is where a lot of these individuals get started. Um, so going to farmers markets and seeing what may be the newest um, product at a farmers market. And then we also go to shows. So there's a the Montgomery County Food Council actually has one next Thursday. Um, so featuring, you know, local artisans. Uh, and then there's a Virginia show as well, uh, which focuses on Virginia, um, specific uh, Virginia products. So a combination of those things. And then a lot of these, you know, with the trends with COVID and just the whole like, industry changing around, a lot of these products are launched online to begin with. Um, so we see that at some of these national shows where we never really saw local guys before are showing up at national shows because they've already gotten started with the online piece. Um, but if they're local to us, then we're interested in talking to them as well. So, so do you think the online piece is pandemic driven or, or is this how people are just sort of starting out these days, trying to sell it online first? Um, I mean, I, I think it's pandemic driven. I mean, I didn't see it two years ago to the extent that it is now. Um, you know, normally when you go to these, and I'm talking about the large shows like the California Expo or the, or the Expo that's now in Philadelphia, uh, Expo East, you know, normally when you would go to these shows, you would have some people that were there that weren't selling anywhere yet. They were basically trying to get into retail. That was their first step to try to get into retail. Last year, when we went to the show, there was a ton of people that were already selling online hmm. um, that were not in retail, but they already had established business. And so um, that's really good on our side because they already worked out the kinks of production, you know, so they're not trying to start from zero to 100. They've already got some business going. Um, so I think it's definitely um, driven by just the push towards everybody being online for everything um, during COVID. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. Can we talk about the people that you brought in today, sort of how you found everybody? And, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people when they walk through your store are kind of, or stores, part of me, are kind of like, wow, how'd they find this one? You know, like, I think the store, the individual stories are really fascinating. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, these guys, uh, I have a great person working for me in Rockville, um, Tarek, um, who is my grocery manager and, and a million other things. And he, you know, he's a lot of times the first point of contact. Um, I know with uh, Nomad Dumplings, I think you were in Glenn's first, right? Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Um, I think you were in Glenn's yeah. first, weren't you? Yes, we were. We were a yeah. launch at Glenn's brand. Mm -hmm. And then um, we moved into the Dawson's in Rockville. Uh, probably a few months after that. So when it was under the old ownership before it closed right. down. Okay, so hold on, Patrice, because I want to so, get into you in a sec, Bart. Hold on. So just tell me quickly how you found everybody, and then I want to give everybody their time so they can tell their story. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so we found everybody. Basically, I think they everybody that's on this group found us. Um, so um, they found us and <laughs> to us. And that process is, you know, you mentioned about kind of us mentoring people. So we, we certainly have a lot of meetings with people that don't have a product that's in production yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll talk to them about packaging, we'll talk to them about pricing, um, we talk to them about distribution. Um, I think that's one of the challenges in getting a product into market, especially coming from a farmer's market to retail. Um, there's licensing involved in that. Um, and then there's also just the, the understanding of the price and how things work. If you sell something for $6 at a farmer's market, that doesn't mean you can sell it to me for $6 because I need to make money on it too. Um, so there's that learning curve. Um, so we work with vendors on a number of things, packaging, pricing. Um, we even work with vendors on ingredients. Um, we supply ingredients to uh, some of the vendors that we work with um, and some vendors that are, are huge now, we still supply to um, because there's specific things that they can get from us that they can't really get from anywhere else in the volume that they need them. That's um, fascinating. I mean, that yeah. makes sense, but that's that's really a partnership. That's amazing. Absolutely. I don't think you see that at a, a lot of grocery stores across the country. Yeah, and we and we obviously work with discounts on you know and, and work with them to try to you know make it beneficial for them as well. So that makes sense. All right, Bart, we're going to get back to you, but I think um, Patrice, I know we started talking with you, but in my order of my show, I'm starting with Lane. So <laughs> I'm going to start with Lane. <laughs> Hey, Lane. Uh, so a friendly bread. 
Um, I'm fascinated in your story. Um, sourdough totally took off during the pandemic. I had starter. Um, I did not make any. Somebody gifted me starter. I kept it alive for like six months. And then I was finally like, why am I doing this? I am never making sourdough bread. So tell me your story, please. Yeah, I did that too a few years ago. So I understand, <laughs> except I killed it a lot more quickly than you did. So congratulations. Okay. <laughs> I came to starting my business after a 12 year career as a nonprofit community organizer. I was always in that world of whether it was legislative advocacy or bringing together communities to support certain um, initiatives. And at the same time, I was developing a bread making hobby. I actually didn't like bread growing up. I always hated how it got too soggy. And, but it turns out sourdough does not get too soggy. It's chewy and crusty and it really holds up. And it's just that perfect amount of challenge that it uh, can develop into kind of an addictive hobby. And that's what people experienced during uh, during those days of lockdown. It's not just that people learn how to make bread, it's that they learn how to make something that was challenging and very rewarding because sourdough is more delicious, chewy, crusty, et cetera. So, okay, so you started making it. When did this all happen? And, um, you know, it's one thing to make it at home and like serve it to yourself, but how do you make it a business? I was experimenting uh, with the, you know, with the hobby. And when you do that, you have some good loaves and some bad ones. And on Monday morning, you bring it into the office, whatever's left, because you probably made more than you needed to eat. And I kept giving them to my boss at the last job that I had. She was very supportive. And after a while, she said, stop giving me free bread. I want to pay you for this. And at the same time, I had friends who would taste it and they'd say, look, you just can't get good bread in Baltimore. This is, and that's where we are. We're based in Baltimore. Um, this is something that Baltimore really needs. And I thought that I could start, I could start doing that. I started selling it on the weekends. I would have, I had an email list. People could order from me and pick up from me in my house on Sundays. I very early on, I met a restaurant owner who my father had known, had gone to middle school with. So we had some connection and he became a little bit of a mentor to me. And one thing that he said to me was, look, the reason you can't get good bread in Baltimore is not because nobody knows how to make good bread in Baltimore. It's because there's not enough of a market for good artisan bread in Baltimore. You have to figure out a way to do this that's not the normal way. And so what I did- it, That was so excellent, my, excellent advice. I agree. And I still think it's true. Um, so what I did was I went the route of not trying to have a storefront. Um, I decided what one thing that's complicated about Baltimore is that people stay in their own neighborhoods. People don't cross neighborhoods to try new things out very much. And so I created kind of a milkman service for bread. Uh, we, uh, I, I got a van eventually and um, we actually like a community supported agriculture, a CSA. We set up different drop off points where people could order their bread and then we drop off. And I also sold at farmer's markets to get a little recognition. And then once COVID hit, uh, we switched from that drop-off uh, at you know, different points um, model to doing home delivery. And we became very busy during, doing home delivery. At a certain point, uh, actually earlier when I was doing my farmer's market sales, customers would come back to our, our table and say, you won't believe the amazing grilled cheese that I made with your bread last week. Or they'd say, you wouldn't believe the amazing French toast I made with your bread last week. There's something about the sourdough and also various flavors of sourdough we were making, all kinds of flavors. We made a turmeric flavor, an olive flavor, a fig and fennel, all kinds of different sourdough flavors. There's something about sourdough because of the chewy and crusty nature of it that makes a superior grilled cheese and a superior French toast and a superior crouton, all these things. Okay. So uh, we had this competition called Battle of the Brands at Be More Kitchen, which is our incubator space in Baltimore. And all, all of the businesses that, were, that are members of Be More Kitchen could compete. And I made various grilled cheeses for the competition and I won best overall for the competition. Well, I just wanna make it clear here, Elaine, you're saying that when it comes to a grilled cheese, it's not about the cheese, it's about the bread. Is that what you're saying? Um, I also did not like, 
I also did not like cheese growing up. Oh my God, so, what's wrong with you, Lane? I'm, I'm, I have problems. Mother, I'm very, very concerned, but go ahead. People are always demanding an explanation from me, so and which I have none. Anyway, uh, it's about both. It's definitely about both. But um, I think people neglect how a good bread can really elevate a grilled cheese. And two days later, after I won that contest, I had some sandwiches that I had pre-made because I was just like kind of finishing them off to heat them up for people at the um, competition. And we had some people over our house and they found them in the fridge and freezer and they just started microwaving them, toasting them or eating them cold and loving them. And I was like, oh, grilled cheese can be a packaged product too. And people really like it. I had never considered doing packaged products before. I was just a fresh bread seller. Mm -hmm. And that's what set me on the path of being a packaged goods maker. And what I also realized was that I was never going to be able to get a good scale selling fresh bread uh, to neighbors in Baltimore because you can get good fresh artisan bread in any city you go to. So it wasn't like I was going to be able to keep expanding with my model. Mm -hmm. With consumer packaged goods, you absolutely can expand. And that's where, that's the route that I began to take. Um, we actually veered off a little bit and created our first package product, which is called Sourdough Toasts, which is a gourmet cracker. Um, we basically make tiny little loaves of sourdough bread, slice them thin and then rebake them, kind of like a raincoat crisp or Melbourne, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the first product that we saw, uh, sold in Dawson's, actually both of their stores. And we're in Whole Foods and Moms with that. And that's been a pretty successful product. Um, but every time I talk to buyers or every time I talk to consumers and say, yeah, we have the sourdough toast and coming up, we're thinking of, um, of continuing with this grilled cheese and then say, oh, tell me about the grilled cheese. I don't, I don't care about the toast. <laughs> and so I, and, and I had actually one, ben, uh, one retailer that every week they would order toasts for me. And then they'd like, just kind of as a joke, they'd be like, and we need a case of grilled cheese, even though I wasn't making it yet. And so finally I made it and it's become popular. We were able to get it into Dawson. Okay, without... so can you explain to me what it, what it looks like and where we find it? Like, can you explain? Yeah. Cause to me, grilled cheese is, okay, great. So you're showing it to me, but now explain it because we're on radio and I can see it, but not everybody else can. Absolutely. All right, I'm gonna do a great vocal caption of the product. Okay, great. All right, it's a single serve heat and eat uh, product. All right. Okay. So we put the grilled cheese sandwich together ahead of time for you. And we melt it slightly so that the whole thing sticks together, but we're not pre-cooking it because if we pre-cooked it the whole time, the whole way, and then you went to reheat it again, it'd be, it'd be rubbery and too chewy. So we're really just kind of like par baking it for you. You can see in this photo, um, it's actually pre-cut down the diagonal, the way people like to cut their grilled cheese. Actually, I'm going to open it up for you. That is true. We like it cut diagonally. Exactly. And so you can see it's pre-cut. And what you do is you break it so that when you put it in the toaster oven, that heat gets to the middle quicker. So it's a faster reheat and it's cut the way you want it anyway. So it's not like you're ruining it by breaking it apart. Uh, it heats up in the toaster oven or air fryer. It's also got um, a little spritz of olive oil on each side. So you get that fat to, to crisp it up. Um, in the middle is good quality um, Tillamook extra sharp cheddar with some low moisture mozzarella just to help with that cheese pull a little bit. And when you heat it up in the toaster oven or air fryer, you get a crispy sandwich that kind of starts to goo out onto the sides of the pan that you're making. And um, I got to be honest, you know, with frozen foods, often when you pick something out in the store, it's you expect it to not be as great as, you know, restaurant quality. That's just what you're expecting with a frozen dinner or whatever. And I was really going for good enough to compete with other frozen foods. And then when I sent it out to my local customers in a soft lunch, I had people tell me this was restaurant quality. This was the best grilled cheese they've ever had. They really noticed that the bread was good. Mm. And, and so it's been a really big success on a soft lunch with our customers We've been uh, selling it at, our, at local stores and we're starting to work towards getting it into larger uh, national retailers. And that's been, that's been going well, no launch date yet, but, um, uh, and then we also have another flavor out, which is cinnamon raisin and brie that was just launched this week. And so, <laughs> I love it. That sounds amazing. It's great. Yeah. So, um, our cinnamon raisin is also a sourdough bread. And so you get this chewy, crusty version of cinnamon raisin. 
It doesn't have any added sugar. So the real um, star flavors of the raisin and the aromatic cinnamon paired with the complexity of sourdough are featured in the cinnamon raisin bread. And the fact that we can get brie into a grilled cheese is just a real treat. We've had people start using it as a, a breakfast grilled cheese <laughs> as well as a lunch and a dinner grilled cheese. So um, actually in, in product requests, we've actually been getting more requests for the cinnamon raisin and brie than the, than the standard uh, original flavor that we started with. So we're really excited about that. Well, before we move on, Lane, I do want to ask, I, I don't feel like I've ever seen a grilled cheese packaged anywhere to buy. Are you the first one on the market? We're the first one in the natural or specialty market. Okay. There are a few versions in conventional stores that are targeted at uh, either kids, like actually Uncrustables did a grilled cheese. Oh, a number guess, of yeah, but nothing yeah. Like what you're doing, nothing elevated. Right. I mean, there's that's still right. nothing with brie in it, that's for sure, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, great. All right, Lane, we're going to come back to you, but we're going to move on and talk about some kimchi with Patrice. Hey, Patrice, how are you today? Well, hello. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Yeah, so um, I am a kimchi maker in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I am using my mother's authentic recipe. Um, I am half African-American and half Korean. Okay. Um, yeah, growing up, uh, my mother made kimchi my whole childhood. Um, well, let's talk a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I've got three different kimchi in my fridge. <laughs> I take a couple spoonfuls every day because fermentation yes. is so good for the gut. Absolutely. But um, let's talk about for maybe some people who aren't really sure about kimchi, what kimchi is. So kimchi is a fermented vegetable and there's over 200 types of kimchi. Uh, if you go to Korea and go to their kimchi market, you will be blown away. Um, but the most common type of kimchi is uh, Napa cabbage kimchi. Um, mm -hmm. And that is like a kind of a bigger lettuce kind of cabbage. Um, and that was, prime, that was I, in my opinion, um, the more common kimchi that people in Korea Here, in the states like especially in the states I think yes. more people are familiar with an apple cabbage sure and I, when they go to really good Korean restaurants which we're very blessed in this area to have yes. so many really amazing ones you know and you uh get the pickle platters like the name just escaped me but there's all these kimchis yes the first time I was like oh of course like obviously there's different kinds but it didn't yeah. occur to me yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, fermented vegetables. So there's cucumber kimchi, radish kimchi, scallion kimchi, any vegetable that you can think of can be kimchi, I guess. But we focus on the Napa cabbage kimchi. Um, that is the type of kimchi that my mom made consistently growing up that I helped her make in our backyard. Um, something that is very, you know, special to me. And I really noticed, uh, you know, as I became an adult that and moved away from my parents' house and didn't have the luxury of my mom cooking all the time, I couldn't find good kimchi anywhere. Um, so if there was a period in my life where when I was in school, I just didn't have kimchi. Um, the grocery stores had super sour, overly fermented kimchi that's been sitting on the shelves for, you know, months and months and months. Um, the quality, in my opinion, just and the authenticity of the kimchis that were out there just wasn't really reminding me of my childhood and the heritage that I know um, is like really good stuff. And so, um, you know, before all of this happened though, um, I was in the restaurant ind industry for over 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, did most front of house management um, in the beginning. And then I had, you know, uh, a change of heart and, I really went back to my passion, which was food, um, especially Korean food. Um, my mom was an amazing cook growing up. So we really enjoyed lots of lots of good food. And so I wanted to kind of focus my career or the next step in my career on food. And so I became a chef um, and I uh, was able to um, help open the first Korean barbecue in DC. Um, I started a catering company where I was catering Korean food. 
Um, I was doing little side things uh, along with being in the restaurant industry uh, that were uh, food-based. And so when the pandemic hit, of course, the restaurant industry just came to a complete stop. Mm -hmm. Um, I lost my job. um, And, you know, I said to myself, um, I have this catering business that's not really generating that much income for me. Um, It's a lot of work, um, meal prepping and Meal doing- prep is work. <laughs> meal kits is hard. I know. Oh <laughs> meal kits, the, the margins there were just really low for the amount of work you have to do. And I talked to a lot of people who were in the meal kit industry and meal prep industry. And, you know, it, it just didn't seem scalable to me. And well, not only that, it became yeah. really bloated really fast, right? Oh, yeah. Like I'm not poo-pooing it. But, you know, everybody was hustling to try, especially those in the industry, trying to figure out what to do and how to do it, right. um, whether creating packaged food. I, mean, I got hit up for more meal kit or meal kit like concepts that I really appreciated. And I thought some of them were really functional, but I was like, when life gets back to normal, God willing, like yeah. what? What's ne- you know, how do you do that? So it sounds like you found something that has longer legs. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, I had a great time. I was doing Korean barbecue meal kits in the height oh. of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, putting together a whole Korean barbecue experience in a bag and delivering them to houses. Um, you know, we're, when we couldn't leave the house and we were spraying down our groceries. Yeah. And that was, you know, really fulfilling because people really enjoyed having that experience in their home. I had, you know, grills for rent if people wanted to really go all out, you know. Um, so that was a very special time. Mm-hmm. But um, again, I had to really sit down and say to myself, Patrice, you know, are you going to go back to the restaurant industry when it reopens or are you going to use your MBA that you got and spent all that money on, use all these things that you, you know, and really start a business that, you know, I can really grow into something, you know, really big. Um, And so. So let's talk about the business and you're making kimchi. How many SKUs do you have? How did you go about figuring out packaging? I mean, come on, these things are not easy to do. It's not. And, you know, I did have, um, I did join an accelerator program in the beginning um, that went, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I should say this on record, but, you know, accelerators programs are not always helpful. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but I be did, honest, be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's some legal stuff going on, so I'm not going to touch too much on that. Okay. But, then you'll be that honest. We yes. Can about it later. Okay. Yes, exactly. I'll give you the tea later. <laughs> um, but anyways, I got, you know, so I, I learned from other brands, um, the, first part of the pandemic where you really couldn't leave the house was really when I honed in on packaging, when I really honed in on my brand story, my target audience, my game plan. Um, So I kind of had some strategy before, you know, launching. um, But I, the one thing that I did do was start in the farmer's markets. Um, I know Bart mentioned going to the farmer's markets and things of that nature, but yeah, that was a great you know, first step for me to see if people would even appreciate, you know, my mother's kimchi, you know, which I knew they would because it's the best. (laughs) But um, it really helped me um, understand and kind of, you know, get some feedback on my product before um, going into like the grocery wholesale world. Did you offer at the farmer's market? Did you just do your mom's Napa cabbage recipe? Yep. We started with three skews, um, three flavors of our Napa cabbage kimchi, a classic, vegan, and extra spicy. Um, so our classic. Kim- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> vegan? Is yes. it already vegan? Oh my God. I get that question a lot at the farmer's markets. Um, and no, um, typically kimchi is made with fish sauce and or shrimp paste. Fish sauce, right. Mm-hmm. Some people right, use right, right. oysters or some other form of seafood, um, and kimchi. Um, you know, but I know that, you know, I'm, I really understand the vegan lifestyle. I understand, you know, allergies towards seafood and things like that. And I didn't want to deny people the benefits of kimchi just because of that one ingredient, which isn't necessarily needed for a fermented vegetable. 
Um, I mean, in Korea, like temple food, the Buddhists and things like that can't have animal products, but they make kimchi. So of course there's a vegan authentic kimchi in Korea. So um, I didn't feel like it wasn't unauthentic to not have that ingredient. Um, but um, I'm glad oh, I'm listen, able to there's a more, that. And obviously there's a market for it. I mean, of there's a market for it. So yeah. let's just talk quickly about your packaging sure. and then how you wound up getting into a market because you've made some massive jumps in a very short period of time. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, again, so started off at the farmer's markets and then you know, kind of added mark, more markets on and on and on. We're operating 10 markets a week now. Mm -hmm. um, and of the farmer's markets wasn't necessarily what we wanted to scale. Um, it's the grocery store world, the wholesale world. And so um, I was uh, fortunate to meet this lovely young lady next to me from Nomad Jeez. Dumplings. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and she was in Dawson's market and I was kind of, telling her I'm struggling. I can't get in touch with the buyer. You know, I I'm dropping cold, dropping off samples at grocery stores and um, I'm giving it to a worker who's like, you know, who probably just took it and ate it. So it was like not going anywhere. And so she, you know, connected me with uh, uh, Tarek at, at Dawson's. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, this was, you know, an amazing grocery store. You know, this is one of her first grocery stores as well. Um, she had an amazing experience with them. They support local. Um, they really have, you know, it, it really fit kind of like my product and target, I think audience. And so um, she connected me and I had my first meeting with my first grocery store buyer and I was super nervous. Um, and then I just remember having him sampled the kimchi and he loved it. And, you know, he asked me if I was in other grocery stores and I told him no. And he looked at me and said, we'll be your first grocery store, Patrice. Uh, <laughs> that's a nice story, Patrice. Absolutely. Wait, no. Pause yeah. you for a sec because I want to sure. bring Karen in. Yep. Karen Hefner, Nomad Dumplings. Karen, can you step up to the mic? Yes. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. You guys, this is so I love talking about stories like this, because obviously you guys are all very passionate about your products. But the, the way you get there is such an important part of what we find on our grocery shelves. And I think it's so important that people hear the stories. So tell me about Nomad Dumplings. How'd you get into the dumpling business? Well, I guess it's a long story, so I'll try to keep it a little short for you. Got 10 minutes. <laughs> Karen. So, um, so I, um, I originally thought of the company with my friend um, about a decade ago. Okay. Um, we were walking in New York, and we realized that there were almost no dumplings in the grocery stores in New York City. And if you were looking for a vegetarian dumpling, there were none. Um, so we thought, wouldn't this be a great idea? And now I'll backtrack on the nomad story a little. Um, my friend who's my partner, her name's Susan, uh, we grew up together and um, we grew up from elementary school. And during recess, she would teach me Mandarin. And, uh, one, and I would always eat at her house, always loved all, all the different flavors of food that her mom would make. And then when I was 22, I moved to Hunan uh, in Southern China. And when I moved there, I took uh, cooking classes at night uh, for two years. And it was during this time, I learned how to make dumplings, learned how to make um, primarily homestyle Hunan cuisine. And then from there, I moved to Beijing where I started working in the CPG industry uh, for a coffee company. And, um, and it was in Beijing that I really got to learn more about colorful dumplings because they were very popular there. Okay. When I moved back to New York, uh, Susan and I actually lived just a couple blocks from each other. So we'd go on our evening walks a lot. And uh, Susan's originally from Hubei, but is Sichuanese and has also uh, worked in Shanghai and studied in Beijing. So we both studied in Beijing, worked in other cities um, and loved traveling around China and around other countries as well. And we were like, oh, let's go out for dumplings. But I was veggie, so it was like, not as many um, options mm. and, and so we were making them a lot, but it's a lot of work. And if you're working a hectic schedule, 
It's like, you don't get home and have time to do that. It's more of like a Friday, Saturday night thing. And I was like, well, what if people want them every day, right? Um, and so we were talking about this and I kind of decided like, this is what I think I want to do. Um, and so it started from there. And our goal with Nomad Dumplings is to um, incorporate a bite of regional cuisine in a dumpling. Um, now regional cuisine can be so complex, so we can't get every note, but we decided, okay, we'll bring in some aspects of regional cuisine and pair it with a personal story. And that's what we'll do. And we'll make them colorful and healthy. So that way we're making a fun food that just so happens to be healthy for our consumers and for the environment. Mm -hmm. And that was our basis. Um, the first dumpling that we came up with was the Hunan Hottie. And it's our number one seller. Mm -hmm. And it's a bok choy and shiitake and chili dumpling. And this dumpling I created when I lived in Beijing. Um, I was missing Hunan food, but loving Beijing dumplings. So I was like, kind of brought everything I loved about Hunan cuisine into a bite of a Beijing style dumpling. So I did bok choy because bok choy was the first vegetable I learned to cook in China. I did shiitake mushrooms because my Chinese teacher Dana would always put shiitakes and everything. She said it made it taste better. So I was like, well, we got to make it taste better. Uh, chili peppers, because everything in Hunan has chili peppers in it. Um, and so we just added elements. Oh, and then we also added woodier mushrooms because um, uh, a lot of vegetarians, they might need more iron in their diet and woodier mushrooms have high elements of iron. So we added that to it for the health component. And so like little things like- figure out, so- how did you figure out to keep them in? How did you figure out the freezing process? How did you figure out how to keep them just as good as fresh? Because that's the hardest part to me, don't you think? Um, I mean, not to disagree, but I'd like to disagree. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think frozen food is like some of the best food in the grocery store. I do. Okay. It's freezing keeps things fresh. I mean, that's why frozen vegetables are so high quality. I look at some of the other products out there. Like I love buying frozen foods. I think it really seals in the freshness. Okay. So how does that apply to your, um, dumplings? Well, so ours, they taste the same frozen as fresh. Okay. There might be slight textural differences, mm -hmm. but you freeze them and then you can cook them and they're so fresh tasting because we're not pre-cooking the filling. Okay. Uh, we prepare it, make the dumplings and then freeze it. And then our consumers can finish it off at home and it cooks in under 10 minutes. So it's so easy to make a fast, simple, healthy and good for the environment meal. So how do you prefer people to cook the dumplings? Do you recommend pan frying? Do you recommend steaming? What's your best way of your product? I think this is where it's fun for the customer. They can really make this their own. And that's our goal for the customer to take sense of ownership and make it their way. We have all of our memories like that go into making the product, but we want our customers to create their own memories by how they make it. I will say our number one uh, desired way that most of our customers say that they like the dumpling mm -hmm. is pan fried. Okay. So that's what we'll, that's what we do the most. Um, my personal favorite is boiled, but oh, everybody's so different. Like, do you throw it in soup and boil? Absolutely. Okay. So I per personally, normally I would prefer it in just boiled water. Mm -hmm. so it just takes about seven minutes in boiled water, or you can do the old school method, which is like how I was taught to do it is you boil water, put the dumplings in and then add cold water three times. And then after the third time it's ready to go. Um, if that's too complex, you can cook them for seven minutes. They'll be ready for you. Very cool. Yeah, the cold water, that could be a little confusing. <laughs> we need to make some videos on it. It's really fun. Okay, I want to see a video of it. That sounds really interesting. Okay, so how did you go from making this product, freezing it, getting the packaging? How did you wind up getting into markets? Like, were you a farmer's market entree first person as well? Or you were like, no, no, no. I'm going big. <laughs> Great question. Um, no, farmers markets were never part of what we did. We wanted to be a straight CPG company. Um, we, we both worked in CPG in the past. And so, you know, I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. I knew the challenges we'd be facing. So we said, okay, let's, 
let's go for it. We know how hard it's going to be. Um, and so the first store that we were in was Glenn's now, which, well, now it's Dawson's. Dawson's. Uh, exactly. And um, our friends at Prescription Chicken, now it's Chick Soup Co. Um, they introduced us to, at the time, her name was Meryl, uh, and she was the buyer at that time. And that was our first store. And I would say our first few stores were either just by going by, dropping off samples, or asking someone who we knew was in the store for an introduction. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually got in before our packaging was even completed. Wow. So set up our first meeting there and Meryl said, and went with our mock-ups. And I said, okay, you know, they, they're shipped, they should land here in two weeks. We just wanna start up our few accounts before the packaging arrives. Um, and I said, this is what it will look like. This is the sizing, these are the specs, this is the pricing would you be interested in um, being one of our first stores? And they said, we'd be interested in being your first store, yeah. which is so great. Cause I think most grocery stores don't want to take that risk. And Glenn, Dawson's Glen's, they do that. They're willing to work with the small vendors, be their first, be their second store. That's huge. Mm -hmm. And then I think the bigger part is they don't just say we're accepting you figure it out they kind of hold your hand a little they say oh let's schedule some demos like okay like you know what can we do to make this better let's work on giving you good shelf space um all these things they're so beneficial and um and then also when it was glenn's we had one other product on the shelves which was annie chuan's um wonderful natural frozen dumpling that's owned by cj foods um but because they're owned by a multinational conglomerate, they can price their products a lot lower than mm -hmm. we ever could. We can even buy our product, our ingredients for. And so what they did was they changed um, the percentages that they took to make us more competitive with Annie Chuan's. Because how grocery works is it's all done by percentages, not by dollars. So right. if you sell something, uh, if something's at the grocery store for $9, that prop, that means that the grocery buyer probably bought it from 35 to 40% lower than that. Well, it's the same thing if it's $3 or $4. So the store might make less on a cheaper good, but it really hurts the small local company because they can't price it low to begin with. Well, and on that note, I mean, the math of it is like a whole rabbit hole that we could go down, right? And I won't. <laughs> I mean, it's huge. And I, you know, I think the layperson wants to, especially in this reason, region, want, you know, this is why a Dawson's market is so popular. This is why farmers markets do so well, is because this is a region that really wants to support local produce, local producers, and their local markets. But, you know, when they go in and they see something and it's, cost prohibitive, they don't understand the math that goes into it. It's no different in a restaurant, right? Like the math, the math makes up the dish and that's usually how it works. But somebody who's not familiar with the industry just thinks it's arbitrary. It's, you know, arbitrary. Like, oh, I just came up with this magic number. Not like there's actual math that goes with it. So to that point, Bart, I kind of want to bring you back in and sort of talk about how, because everybody here talks about how you and Dawson's helped them today, like how you helped either help them with packaging or help them with ingredients or helped with margins. All of that is so important. Was that something that you always figured you'd be doing when working with local producers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, one of the things that, you know, I'm most passionate about is, you know, supporting other businesses. You know, I think being able to small businesses are the backbone of the country and um, trying to support small businesses um, and being able to, to, to do that and give people a chance um, is really something that I'm passionate about and, and certainly my staff is passionate about, um, you know, similar to working with people with, with developmental disabilities. It's, it's a way to give back to the community um, and to support the community. So we're, we're super happy to do it. Um, and I think it's hard to get, I mean, and all the stories you've heard, I mean, it's, it's hard to get into grocery stores. And I, you know, I work for Whole Foods. Um, prior and you know I know what's involved in in getting into these giant stores and and that's you know ultimately the goal for for all these guys is to get that kind of distribution um, 
we don't want them to forget where they started, <laughs> but um, you know, we, we, we support that and want them to be successful and have national distribution or global distribution, um, but you can't start there. You know, so you have to kind of get started. And a lot of um, grocery stores aren't really willing to do that. You know? And we've had, certainly had our challenges and not with any of these guys, but we certainly had our challenges with, with you know, new people and you know, thinking they can deliver at 7.30 at night, not a problem. You know, th those types of things, you know, um, we kind of have to train and teach. Um, but I think it's a great way for us to give back to the community and to support people that work with, you know, that live in, in our area. Well, I love that. All right. Um, I want to thank you all for joining us today. Um, Lane, Patrice, Karen, if you all could please give everybody where we can find you and your products, either online or on Instagram. Lane, let's start with you. Yeah. Um, well, our grilled cheeses and our sourdough toasts are available at Dawson's and a few local Baltimore area stores like Eddie's, Growls. Um, there's also a um, delivery service called Rooftop Hot that's, uh, that does home delivery anywhere in the Baltimore, D.C. region okay. and for just a $3 home delivery fee. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, I know. Give me your handle, dude. A friendly bread. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Patrice, give me your where we can find you and your handle, please. Yes, you can find my three flavors of Napa cabbage kimchi at uh, our website online at www.tegukimchi.com, T-A-E-G-U kimchi.com. Um, that's our website. We do local delivery. We ship nationwide. Um, so order away. I would love to get you my mother's authentic kimchi. It's made to be fresh. It's not overly fermented. So the fermentation is kind of left up to you, but um, I hope you give it a try. Excellent, thank you. And Karen, Great. tell us Hi. about you, Matt. Um, well, you can find us at the wonderful Dawson's Market, as well as other local stores in the Mid-Atlantic, Whole Foods um, in New York on Gorillas, and nationwide on gtfoitsvegan.com. Great, you. excellent. And where do we find you on Instagram? on Instagram at Nomad Dumplings. Excellent, thank you guys so much. And Bart, tell everybody where they can find both Dawson Markets and where we can find you online and on Instagram, please. Sure, so our original store is in Rockville Town Square in Rockville, Maryland, um, 225 North Washington Street, just downtown Rockville. Mm -hmm. And then the new location is in DuPont Circle. It's just north of the circle. It's 20th and S Street. Um, so it's 2001 S Street Northwest, um, right near the uh, Metro station there. And you can find us at dawsonsmarket.com or Dawson Market on Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you all for joining me today. Well, that was such a terrific show. Um, I love Bart Yamblonsky. He is, as they say in Yiddish, a real mensch. I mean, he's just somebody who really thinks of other people, which is why both of his Dawson's Markets are so successful, because in order to be good at what you do, you have to look at what's around you and supply what is needed for the neighborhood around you. And that is what BART does. Anyway, I loved all the people we talked to today. What amazing products. I cannot wait to get my hands on some kimchi, which I'm gonna put on that grilled cheese and I'm gonna have some dumplings on the side. There you go, there's dinner for you. So thank you as always for joining me on Industry Night. I'm Nikki Nellis at N-Y-C-C-I, N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, tune in every Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis here on Real Fun DC. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.